Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future, a podcast of ideas. Today, we're talking about what life was really like behind the Iron Curtain with Katja Hoyer, who's the author of a much-acclaimed new history of East Germany, and Leia Ippi, whose memoir, Free, tells the story of her growing up in communist and post-communist Albania. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me slash ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. Katja, East Germany lasted for, well, 41 years, 40, 41 years, which is kind of half a human life, a, a long human life. If you were unlucky because you didn't live long, you might be born, live and die in East Germany. But for almost everyone, it's a part of their lives. So you, you start with Angela Merkel. So for her, it's the first part of her life. She's formed by East Germany, and then she becomes Angela Merkel in another setting. But the people who created the state... It's the second part of their lives. So the people who made the GDR were not made by the GDR. They were made by something else. How would you characterize the life experience of the people who built this state? Well, it was important to me to characterize it because most of the histories of the GDR start in 1949 when the state uh, is formed. And I think that's somewhat misleading because you kind of then assume that it comes out of nowhere when really it comes on the back of the Second World War and the experiences that people made there. And it's actually that the state itself is a product of the Second World War. It wouldn't have existed without that. Um, and the people who found it, so people like Walter Ulbricht, who's sort of the first, for the, he's, he was the leader for the first half of the, the state's existence, um, and Wilhelm Pieck, who's the first and only president of the GDR, um, not only get made by the experiences in the Second World War, but actually by the fact that they are in Russia during that time. So these German communists um, sort of fled Germany when Hitler came into power and, and also because they had this huge admiration for the Soviet Union as the kind of first and only realisation of the sort of utopian dream that they had for decades beforehand. Um, and they go there and they find that actually the reality that they find in Soviet Russia is very different. Not only are the living standards not quite what they'd expected, it really isn't a workers uh, and, and sort of peasants, you know, paradise at that point. Buildings are crumbling, the, there's often food shortages and things like that, which they, you know, in their minds hadn't quite experienced or imagined. Um, and then on top of that, you got the Stalinist purges in the mid to late 1930s, and they get particularly targeted at these German communists and Germans overall, anybody who's got some sort of German connection, because Stalin in his mind imagines that there's like a fifth column for Hitler and they're all, you know, kind of pretend communists that really at heart they're, they're fascists. And that paranoia spirals out of control and, and actually the vast majority of German communists either die or, or kind of disappear in in these um, in that sort of maelstrom. And the ones that don't and, and stay, that's kind of the heart residue really of, of the German communist 
exclave there and that's quite interesting in itself so if you survived these purges it's for a reason usually it's very rarely that it's kind of just chance or coincidence it's because you've adapted to the system you were ideologically flexible in a way that maybe some other people weren't adapting to Stalin's kind of back and forth uh, not least with the Hitler-Stalin pact you know that was quite a, <laughs> a mental thing to do to try and get used to the idea that for a while you know they're allies really when when they make that pact and then that whole thing breaks apart again and it's those people who come out of that that's a very specific type of person that then sets up the East German state. Yeah, one of the things that I was really interested in, though, is that it seems like the socialist character of the GDR is not settled at all at the beginning, and that Stalin has a big role to play, but not the role that one would expect Stalin to have. And I was thinking about Italy, because I think Stalin played a similar role in the Italian Communist Party. He more or less told the communists, Togliatti and so on, to stop thinking about communism and revolution and just follow the democratic path. And I wondered if Stalin had had his say in the GDR, the sort of kind of the socialist part of it might have been in question. It might have turned out to just be a liberal social democratic republic like Western Germany. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because I was very curious and, and I thought it'd be really interesting for people who haven't heard that side of the story. Yeah, it is really interesting because most people assume that the GDR, like the other Eastern European states, and to some extent, as you say, a communist movements elsewhere as well, are like direct sort of vassal movements or vassal states even of the Soviet Union, particularly under Stalin's sort of boot. Whilst, you know, Stalin initially says actually what he wants out of Germany, which had just been defeated just about, you know, by the Soviet Union, which had given its all at that point to try and, and defeat Hitler's Germany, needed reparations. And anything that was contrary to that, any this particularly this rapid buildup of communism, that Walter Ulbricht is trying to uh, to push forward in in this kind of very young, unstable state, uh, is actually contrary to that idea. So if you take, say, the collectivization of agriculture, um, you end up with these huge pieces of land that the Juncker class, the Prussian aristocracy, held beforehand for decades, and the social structures that come with that get dissolved. You end up with tiny little parcels of land given to, to new farmers. They were called basically mostly people who'd come from the eastern territories that Germany had lost during the Second World War um, and who hadn't really had any experience in, in farming and certainly not in the entire economic kind of side of things that comes with that. And the farming sector collapses as a result of that. You get given like a football field worth of land, you know, and you get told, do something with this. You have no idea how you're going to do that. And that's an ideological decision that Ulbricht makes. Stalin says, don't do that because ultimately we want you to produce as much as possible. Um, and it's quite, you end up with this absurd situation where Walter Ulbricht is more Stalinist than Stalin. And, and Stalin basically t tells him to, to tone it down, which isn't something that we normally associate with that kind of relationship. Because that's one of the weird tensions here. The people who survived were the people who were willing to adapt to all of Stalin's whims. But then when they get a bit of power, they're not. And it is, I mean, the, the Italian comparison is interesting. All the way through your book, there are these moments of possible paths not taken. You know, most people think of the GDR as this deeply predetermined story. The state is set up, it's going to fail. And you're kind of waiting for the clock to tick down. And it turns out 40 years is its shelf life. We'll talk in a bit about the possibility of ways it might have succeeded. But there's also the shadow of German reunification hanging over it. And at its origin, I mean, Stalin's pushing for a version of a kind of neutralized single German state. And it's the people who survived by never going against Stalin 
who go against Stalin to prevent that. Yeah, and it's, it's absurd in many ways when, you know, you think about the big picture of that. But when you break it down to the situation that they're in, you know, you've got a group of communists, German communists, who've, who've sat there for decades dreaming about creating a socialist state on German soil. And when 1917 happens in Russia, um, you know, and you get the first uh, sort of, you know, realisation of that dream somewhere, but not in Germany, they think actually the situation isn't too different from what Ger- the state that Germany gets into at the end of the First World War. And they think surely now people are so angry with the existing regime, this is the moment for revolution. And it doesn't happen. So when it finally happens and they get given this piece of land to establish socialism on German soil, they think now is the only moment we, we need to grasp the situation now. And that's why they even go against sort of their big idol Stalin in that way, because they realize actually, you know, if they let it go now, Germany reunifies and and forms a a sort of neutral bourgeois sort of neutral state effectively, then that chance is gone forever. And they know that. But it's not a propitious piece of land, right? So like you say, it's the agricultural bit. The industry is over in the West, very limited natural resources. From the beginning, the East German state is haunted by the fact it can't power itself, right? It has to rely on lignite. And so it's going to be dependent on the Soviet Union, essentially, for oil. So they've, they've got their piece of land, but in a way, it's it's the wrong bit for the socialist paradise. Yeah, in many ways, especially if you're setting up a, a sort of workers, you know, state. And I think in many ways, they forget uh, kind of how rural and how traditional in many ways these, these kind of social structures are as well, because their ideology you know, as you find a lot with communism is based on an urban proletariat. And yes, that you have that in Berlin and you have it in Dresden and other areas like that. But really the GDR itself is, as a society, not quite what, you know, these communists who hadn't lived amongst these people for 12 years is. When they come back, they've, they've experienced 12 years of of Nazi ideology and so on and so forth, uh, you know, society isn't exactly, you know, kind of ideal for communist conditions and it just gets put over the top of perhaps, a, you know, an East German public that doesn't quite know what to do with that. You also have all of these refugees coming from Eastern Europe. That's, you know, another 12 million people on the move with nothing. They need to be integrated into the existing society. It's, again, something that doesn't quite work within the kind of ideology that, you know, that they set up. I think that's generally the case in all Eastern European socialist states. These were all mostly rural, not the most industrialized capitalist part of Europe. And in the Balkans, it becomes really extreme because they're almost feudal. And to me, this is one of the paradoxes of real socialism in the 20th century is the fact that it doesn't happen. It doesn't get realized where the textbook says that it should be realized, you know, England and France and or the most industrialized capitalist part of Germany. And And in a lot of these places, it actually comes to power through elections. Of course, it's after the war. And of course, the war has divided the world in spheres of influence and so on. But there is something about the fact that the society is under these conditions that makes people decide that they want to pursue the communist or the socialist transition to communist path rather than the liberal democratic path. And that's a very interesting, one of the kind of most weird things about socialism, the real socialism. Except I think, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the one person who said it's coming in East, not West Germany was Rosa Luxemburg. Mm who said, you know, they've got it wrong. Like they, They've got this overly schematic thing that the more industrialized you are. You know, her reason was, actually, you have to see where people are suffering from imperial oppression. That's where the you know, the, the uprising will happen. Yeah. But she was almost unique, I think. In I mean, I, who, 
God knows what she would have thought of the GDR, right? <laughs> but she was the one who said, this is way too schematic. Yeah, but I can't remember now if she said this before or after the Bolshevik Revolution, because it, you know, so it was like in the first, after the first Russian Revolution. Yeah. And I think it's because there was this movement then that made people, you know, you could see that they were mobilizing and the workers were mobilizing alongside the peasants and they were playing some role in kind of, but I think you're right that it is, it, well, yeah. I, mean, so I don't think she theorized this in the abstract. I think she saw the movement and then she felt the need to justify what was going on in these contexts and and did so effectively. So in many ways, what you describe, Katya, in the book is, is pretty unpropitious beginnings for this state. And yet then you want us to see that at various points, it's much more stable than you might think. And at some points, it's more prosperous than you might think. The story has to pass through 1953, and I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that, but we can't completely ignore it. No, right? The, right. the, the first resistance to this version of East European Soviet domination comes in East Berlin in 53. And so the East German state is the first one to experience the crushing of that. And that does set the path for the next 35 years. Yeah, I think the story is slightly different, though. It often gets put into, or people draw a straight line from 1953 to 1989, as though they were part of the same sort of resistance movement against the state, which I don't think they are. In 1953, I've, I found it really interesting talking to older people who were around during that time, and they said, actually, in 49, 50, 51, there was a genuine sense of optimism. You know, they, they had a country that was completely gone with all of its social structures, also in its physical structures. It was a complete sort of tabula rasa type situation and thereby a chance to build a new Germany completely from scratch. And that appealed to a lot of people, you know, even thinkers like Bertolt Brecht and, you know, people like that who who saw a chance here to do something completely different. And so, you know, they wanted to roll their sleeves up and get going. And even if it's against everybody, Stalin on the one side, the West on the other side, they'll do it. And then that doesn't happen. You know, they, they struggle, they, they work sort of hours and hours every day, the shelves are still empty, the, the currency gets devalued massively, and it doesn't seem to go anywhere, you know, people's efforts and people's kind of genuine attempt to, to make do, but try and get, you know, forward and do something with this new state. And the regime is so obstinate about this entire situation as well and just telling people, you know, just get on with it, just do it. And there doesn't seem to be any outcome, you know, and you do that over two, three years and people are going to get incredibly angry. And my, my favorite situation, I've got that in the book as well, is where the workers then actually on the on the Staliner Leofel places in Berlin kind of march towards uh, the, the state building and, and stand in front of Ulbricht effectively and say, come out and talk to us. And Ulbricht goes... Oh, I think it's beginning to rain. They, you know, that'll disperse them. And you just think, you know, how detached from from the realities on the ground can you get? And I think it's that that feeling that they weren't heard, their their concerns weren't being heard. This was supposed to be a state for them, for workers, for ordinary people, and that doesn't come about. That's, I think, the sense of frustration that you see unload onto the streets. Whilst you know the the, the situation, say in Hungary or in Czechoslovakia, I think is a, is a different one later on. Well, I was thinking it's almost when I was reading your book, it was almost the inverse development of Albania, because the GDR starts in this, as, as you say, isolated way. You know, well, not isolated, but sort of fighting, trying to assert its will against the Soviet Union and against the Western capitalist countries, and then eventually realizes, and the story, as I understood it, of the sixties and seventies, is one where it needs to make more compromises and open up to the world. So it opens up to the Soviet Union a bit, but also 
to West Germany. And in Albania, it was almost the opposite. So the state started with first a very loose affiliation to Yugoslavia. Then it was pragmatically following the Soviet Union when it fell out with Yugoslavia for territorial reasons. And then it kind of isolated itself from the Soviet Union and allied with China, then isolated itself from China when the Chinese became more moderate. And then in the 80s, when I was growing up, when the GDR was to Albanians, a kind of beacon, a paradise of socialism, really, it was very, very isolated and fighting against everyone and on its own. And to me, it was really interesting because from Albania, I remember in the 80s, we didn't really distinguish very much between West Germany and East Germany, even though these were very, very different states. They were still better than us. And to some extent, they have more consumer goods and, you know, they had jeans and you would go and the streets look different. And it was a very interesting when I was comparing these stories, how this was one movement of isolation and towards greater openness and compromise. And on the other hand, you had this other country that started with some more compromise and then became more and more isolated. But then 1989-1990, both these counterfactual stories end up in the same place with the triumph of capitalism. Do you think part of the reason for that counterfactual is that East Germany is half a country? It's always half a country. It's always haunted by the fact that there is a completion narrative that might be coming. Whereas Albania as it were, national identity gets stronger and stronger. In some ways, that haunting of there is a Germany which is more than us, it never really weakens, does it? And these are divided families. I mean, I was really struck by the number of instances where the regime in East Germany said to the Soviets, to, to Moscow, you've got to understand our citizens have relatives mm. on the other side and we can't stop contact with them. You know, they are going to communicate. They're going to share stuff. They're going to be sent genes from over the border. And that's the thing that makes the GDR in some ways different from some of these other stories that are so driven by nationalism and national mm, identity. I completely agree. I mean, it's the same when, or actually it's, it's the inverse, but a similar situation in Poland where it's a constant struggle for national identity and that eventually becomes kind of the focal point of their resistance to the Soviet Union and, and the same you know patterns you still see today in Poland's support for Ukraine now, for example, the way that that's shifted the relationship there. But I think for Germany, this is really interesting because you know nobody understands this better than, than Erich Honecker, who, the, the second leader basically for the, for the second half of the time of the GDR's existence, who was from the Saarland in the far west himself. Actually, only sort of 100 kilometers away, his birthplace from from the birthplace of Helmut Kohl, the West German Chancellor at the time. So in a way, they were sort of locals once, you know, to the same region in West Germany and are now leaders of opposing countries. And Honecker still has a sister um, in, in the West. You know, when his parents die, he decides not to go to the funeral because he feels that he can't do that if other people aren't allowed to go. You know, he can't he can't be seen to go west whenever he pleases and then not allow people to do the same thing. So that's why I think you see him almost pleading with the Soviets to understand that that's a constant pressure on, on East Germany, this kind of pressure to reunify or at the very least to allow the people to reconnect in some shape or form. Um, and once you, st you start doing that, you lose the middle classes and the upper classes because they will take the opportunity and, and go into a state that that, you know, allows them effectively to to further their own social standing and their and their income. So that conflict or contrast between East and West is always always there. There's always another Germany on the other side that you can choose as an option when you want to. Whereas if you're Polish or Albanian or or um, Czech, you know, you, you would have to make a conscious decision to move to a foreign country with a different culture, different language, visa requirements, and so on. Leah, did you, when you were a child, you say East Germany was both a beacon, but also seemed remote, the experience seemed remote. So then when you read about it in Catcher's book, 
and compare it to your experience, does it still seem remote for some of these reasons? Actually, a, a very different kind of society? No, in some ways it's very similar. So it's sort of really weird because there are some things that clearly resonate, the way children were brought up, the sort of ideology, the pioneers, these youth groups that were you know, organized on communist principles. Also the criticism, the craving for consumer goods and the looking outside and the drive, the desire to emigrate to be somewhere else. And it's just this idea that there's more choice in Western capitalist countries. All of these sentiments I shared. But when I remembered being in Albania and when I remembered my parents or people talking about the they talked about Germany and they didn't really say in the GDR or in the FDR. And I remember also in the World Cup, it was always Germany's playing and then nobody was asking which Germany. Well, what <laughs> so, happened when they played each other in 74? Did people yeah, get right. so then, freaked out? So then, exactly. So then it was a bit more confusing for me as a child. But, you know, most of the time, some of the things came from the GDR because people were traveling from Albania when they were traveling more easily to the GDR and the football teams or the, the sport teams often did travel more easily to Eastern Germany than Western Germany. And when they came, they came as though they'd gone to this other world that was very, very different. But then when I was reading your book, some of the things from this world were actually quite similar. So you have a Coke can on the cover of your book. There's the Coke can story in in Free. But the difference, just reading the two accounts, in Albania, there's a strong sense that this human instinct to be consumer has to be suppressed. And what I was really taken aback by in many ways, particularly with Hanukkah, was the extent to which he thought the stability of the regime depended on, mm. if not quite pandering to consumerism, indulging it. Yeah. Um, and it comes in waves, right? There are big imports of American genes at various points when the state can afford it. Amazing that it can afford it. Mm. Um, but it, it, it comes and goes. I mean, clearly, Honecker is slightly unsure about this. But overall, there are one or two points where you, you can see that he thinks the only way we're going to survive is if we do meet some of these consumer aspirations. And it's a kind of fatal mistake, perhaps. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, because it's not an adaptable enough regime. There's a sort of opening of the door to this. But you can't just import genes and then think that will do it. Mm. You, you build the Trabant. You say it's a better car than people remember. But what's so interesting about the history of it is that it couldn't adapt. You know, the car ends up not being able to evolve mm. as people's expectations shift. That seemed to me to make the GDR an unusual communist regime. I think it is, and it boils down to what we were saying about this comparison to West Germany. I mean, people are looking at their own relatives in the West. You know, we had we had relatives that sent parcels over, and you opened this up, and it seemed like they had all of this stuff. You know, we found out later, for instance, that my uncle, who used to send us like coffee and chocolate and things, and you know, it was sort of pretended almost like he was this, um, you know, very cosmopolitan man who had access to everything. And then we found out that he bought all of this at Aldi, you know, at the time, because he was a working class man in, in West Germany, but had obviously access to sort of cheap versions of the things that, that were lacking in the GDR and just sent them over and, and sort of, you know, enjoyed the fact that nobody had any idea how he actually lived in, in West Germany. And then the other thing that people forget is that access to Western television, music, culture, culture was there because of broadcast media. I mean, there were only two areas and because of the proximity in East Germany that didn't have access to Western television and radio. And they were they were sort of jokingly known as the Valley of the Clueless. Um, it's like deepest, darkest Saxony and a little bit in the north. But everybody else had access to Western television. So they sat there and watched the news on, on West German TV 
and more importantly, perhaps all of the adverts, you know, and you begin to imagine because you have no idea how consumerism works. We, of course, sit here and watch a TV advert and think this is ridiculous. You know, this this kind of conversation would never happen in real life or, you know, nobody has got white teeth like that. But if that's the only little window that you have into a consumerist world and you assume because it's the West, it must be true then you assume that that's what the entire world's like. And I think Honecker realizes that these expectations are growing because people have got access to just a little bit of the of snippets of that world. He's trying to pander to that. And as you say, then he, he creates more expectations. You know, jeans is a perfect example. He imports one million Levi's jeans from the US for a population of 16 million people. That's ridiculous. Well, that is going then, to fuel demand. Yeah, it's not it's going to satisfy not enough. It. Exactly. There's a complete run on it. There's complete chaos. You know, all of the um, sort of shops where it's sold, they get overrun by these, you know, East German suddenly consumers. And then what's he going to do? Do that every year, you know, until everybody's got 10 pairs of jeans and then they will want something else next. So... It's interesting that Honecker does that, but at the same time, kind of staunch old school communists like Eric Mielke, the head of the, the Stars, you get really concerned about this. And Mielke actually goes so far as to kind of start collating incriminating evidence, um, you know, against Honecker to try and see that if this whole thing fails eventually, he can show that he was on the right side of history and he knew it all along. Um, and he collates them all in this famous red suitcase that he keeps in his office um, that is only found after the war came down. So I was thinking about this. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question, but what is the Marxist view of consumerism? I mean, it's a big question, but for some people, particularly critics of Marxism in general, there's a view it's, it must be a very kind of ascetic, repressive, anti-pleasure philosophy. But it's not. And, and Marx and Engels, you know, Engels definitely wasn't against pleasure. And you know, there are versions of Marxism w which do fit this, right? The point of these workers' paradises is that the workers will have access to these goods. Yeah, although I also I've thought a lot about this thing after also after reading Katya's book about this whole question of consumer goods in Eastern Europe and in kind of socialist countries. And sometimes we think that people wanted consumer goods because they were inherently driven to these goods because they were made in a certain way, because marketing has presented them in a certain way and because, there, you know, it worked in, the, in this kind of old-fashioned Marxist way. You know, you are able to package something and you're presenting it to this individual and the individual will be attracted to it and they won't think what's behind it. They will just fall for it. And this was used to be my view about the way socialist citizens related to consumer goods. But I recently started to think that it wasn't actually just about the goods. I think wanting the good was an expression of dissent towards your own system. So I don't think it was just the fact that we liked Coke can because Coke can looked nice and, you know, tasted nice and we didn't have it. We would like no matter what, if we didn't have it, just to signal to the government that you can't deny me this. So to me, it was a little bit more complex than that. And, and I think the example of jeans is actually really good. When East Germany starts producing its own brand jeans, you know, they look the same. Okay, maybe they're not as well made and they're not as durable, but people just don't like them. They want the ones that have the American brand. And there's something, and I was thinking about Rousseau when I was reading this, there's something about the comparison that's driving the desire there rather than the access to the stuff. It's not about the stuff as such. It's about the stuff as shaped by social relations and by you wanting it because someone else has it and you can't have it because you've been denied by the state to have it. And I think, especially in the case of Albania, which was completely isolated and where the state did not pander at all to this consumer, you know, we just didn't have any jeans of any kind. We didn't even try their own <laughs> brand. We were like, jeans are imperialist. And that's it. That's the end of, of the discussion. 
then I think having these things became like a mark of, it was like a political protest. You wore a pair of jeans and you were saying to the states, what are you going to do you, now? You can't stop and, me. and often people were, you, you know, they were called to their offices and they were reprimanded for wearing jeans or for exposing. So it was, it wasn't always repressed, but it was risky. You could be stopped and you could be called to your office and someone could have a chat with you and say, look, where are you going with these jeans or with this swimming costume? And yet people still did it. So they were exposing themselves to some risk by wearing the jeans or by having the Coca-Cola can exposed in their living rooms. And it was, I think, a very obvious mark of protest in a country where there was no open protest. And I think this is something that maybe we haven't thought about enough, the fact that it wasn't just about the consumer good, but there was something else that wanting this consumer good was signaling that went beyond access to the stuff. But that then suggests there's a real problem with this type of regime because you have the version where consumer desire is repressed and then these goods become a vehicle for an expression of identity or even freedom. And then you have the societies where this is not repressed, it's pandered to, and then you can't contain it. And in a way, therefore, there is, I mean, maybe not with Marxism, but with this version of politics, consumerism is its fatal flaw. Mm. But interestingly, you know, and this links into what you were just saying as a form of kind of protest, it immediately loses its shine the moment the wall falls and you've got access to these things. I've heard this time and time again from people. They were so excited, you know, in, in 1989. They're going over for the first time. They buy all the things that they've been dreaming of for so long. And then suddenly it all seems very empty and, and it loses its the sort of magic that it had beforehand. And, you know, especially the sort of grabbiness of, of that moment. People describe how they were given this this welcome money from West Germany, 100 marks, and they had to have a stamp in their passport to show that, you know, they wouldn't claim it twice. And these were all people who had jobs, who had sort of dignity, who had worked all their lives. And they were like, you know, they felt like they were given chocolate bars and, and bananas and all of these things as if they, you know, they just come from from somewhere that didn't have anything or, you know, and suddenly you get this disaffection with this whole thing once again. And I think you see that that unfold in the 1990s as as political disaffection with, with this new system that they're in. And so can I just, do you remember in the 1990s, I'm sure it was the same in East Germany, how people literally replaced furniture in their mm, houses yeah. and were getting rid of the cupboards and the tables. And I think now, 30 years after, things are changing. I could see it in Albania as well. There's these tables and these chairs that have become objects of, you know, they're like antique pieces. Mm. And I had this I don't know if we have time, but my mom had a pair of flip-flops from communist period produced in a plastic factory. And she claimed that these flip-flops would never die because they weren't made for the <laughs> consumer market. So they were, she was like, they're not like these other flip-flops in the West or in capitalist countries where they make them for a couple of years and they break so you can replace them and buy a new one. These flip-flops were literally indestructible. And at some point she'd lost her flip-flops and she was going mad. You know, I've lost my best flip-flops. <laughs> and I was like, you would have sold your soul mm. to get rid of these flip-flops and to have, you know, the cheap one Primarks or whatever flip-flops that you find. And now you're thinking this was the real thing. And yet, Katya, as you write, there are moments of real anxiety in the West during the 60s and 70s that the East is forging ahead. And there are some amazing figures in your book. I think it's fridge yeah, ownership. That, that was the That's the one that people think, really? But, <laughs> but they held there up. Are more, more fridges in, the, in East Germany than in West Germany. And you say that well, the 50s were a pretty turbulent time. And your book is pushing back against the idea that there's this thing called Stasiland East Germany, which is just this sort of monolithic block in space and time, and then it collapses. It's very volatile. There are lots of ups and downs, lots of twists in your story. 
But you do say in 61, it stabilizes. 61 is the year that the wall goes up. And then it does stabilize to a certain extent. And through the 60s and 70s, there are periods where it looks like this thing might work. It certainly looked like that to the people from the inside. So when you speak to people about the particularly, I'd say, the late 60s, early 70s, it felt like a period of progress because, you know, you got the space race going on, the Soviets get the first man into space, the first German in space is an East German, Sigmund Jen, and, you know, it looks like for all the world they have a chance at at, at least catching up in the in the arms race, in the space race, in the... In society, many people feel they're actually further ahead. You know, there are many people who feel that the development of, of women in society, of the working classes getting kind of genuine access to education and cultural things. And as you say, a militarized society is very good for class mobility. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the ironies. We imagine these kind of military societies as kind of, you know, static um, and oppressive things. But at the same time, you know, the entire officer class gets completely reformed for the very first time in German history that there's access for people from from the lower classes, not just access, but actually a, a kind of desire to get these people into those positions. So you might be, you know, the son of, of refugees from the East who came with nothing and suddenly you're you're in a uniform, you're commanding a group of men and, and you've got all the status that comes with that in society. So all of that's happening and people, I think, appreciated that from the inside, despite the fact that, of course, the war brings massive human tragedies for many German families um, as well with it. So that that doesn't go away, but it doesn't affect everybody. And people forget that as well. If you haven't got relatives in, in the West, um, then that doesn't really affect you very much at, th- at that point, particularly working class families who hadn't actually traveled, say, or gone on holiday before the GDR and suddenly there's subsidized holidays and people don't sit there and say, I'd much rather be in the south of France because it doesn't even occur to them that that might be the case. They go to the Baltic Sea and have their holiday or, I don't know, you know, skiing in in Czechoslovakia or or whatever it may be. So, you know, people arrange themselves with the system. They begin, things begin to stabilize. And, you know, as Leah was just saying, in terms of living standards, there was also a feeling within the GDR that they had sort of reached the highest living standards in the communist world. And they were looking at the other people around them and were saying, actually, this is working. And also at the living standards they had before the GDR, you know, during the war, and then also during the Weimar Republic, during the First World War, older people, there just hadn't been this amount of stability and and prosperity before. So I think it's perhaps it is an illusion. I mean, there is always this problem of the socialist orbit not having the amount of you know possibilities import and export wise of actually setting up the sort of economy that Germany works on you know this kind of idea of importing ch- cheap raw materials and then exporting uh, expensive goods elsewhere that world just doesn't exist for the GDR to operate in so it was always a problem how is it going to do this kind of German business model when it when it can't operate in the same way that, that West Germany can um, but internally, certainly, it looked to the people of the GDR like stability had arrived and they were making progress. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, did you, when you were reading it, did you ever think there's a sort of what-if version of this, that this thing had more life in it than we appreciate? Yes, but on the other hand, then reading the details, I found there were some extraordinary paradoxes. So one of them was the fact that, for example, they had to pander to this, again, consumer desire for access to bananas. And I remember reading in Katya's book that they were buying bananas with the money they made from the sale of political prisoners. And this is one of That's these things. That's not a basis just, for a statement. <laughs> you just think if this is what's going on. Something's going And this wrong. is how people have thought that they can get around this problem of buying banana by selling political prisoners. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there is a logic to it, but it wasn't that obvious. It's not a sustainable logic. Right. And Nazi paraphernalia and works of art. And it was just totally bizarre how they were trying to just create currency with all of these kind of weird schemes. None of them were sustainable in the long run. When I was reading it, I thought, and maybe I've, I've read it wrong, but it felt like the GDR relative maybe to other Eastern European regimes was better at adapting when it got a stroke of good fortune. So there were there were points at which it was more open to the possibility that things are going well. And there were times where they thought we should open up a bit further. But what it had in common with those other regimes is that when things turned against them, it was very inflexible. So particularly over energy, very dependent on Soviet oil. And so when you go through the 70s and move into the 80s, and that pipeline literally is cut off, the regime has no idea how to adapt. And it's that one of the questions you ask of any political regime is not where do you want to be where things are going well, but where do you want to be when something unexpectedly bad happens? And this was not a regime that knew how to deal with unexpected turns of ill fortune. No, and especially not as there was no like renewal at the top. I mean, when you think in 1989, you still have Erich Honecker, who is, you know, himself a product really of the Second World War and of, of uh, kind of this period. That now seems a long time in the past for somebody who's in their 20s in the 1980s. You know, and then there's this this kind of dinosaur from way back when who sat in a Nazi prison and experienced all of this kind of, you know, Stalinist training at the time as well. He'd gone to Moscow to be trained as a as a communist, as a young communist, you know, and then you have Eric Mielke, same thing. He, he fought in the Spanish Civil War and was trained as a as a sort of Czechist, really, you know, with all the methods of sabotage and, and uh, subterfuge and all of that that came with that. You know, these people are still running the state in the 80s. And you think there's all of these young East Germans who've gone through quite a good education system, are all very literate, read a lot, are very confident, including women, you know, and going out there and actually saying their opinion because they've been told to do that ironically. And then you have a system sitting at the top, you know, that's dealing now with the highly educated, highly confident and highly vocal society that wants to express, you know, what's wrong with this and what they what they want to change. And you've got all of these old men sitting at the top saying, no, 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 this is not how we do things. In the 1930s or in the 1920s, we learned it this way and that's how we're going to do it. And they and are I, all men. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And that, you know, that's another um, issue. Although I find it quite interesting that, for instance, in 1953, you know, within the Politburo, one of one of the staunchest opponents really of um, Walter Albrecht is a, is a woman, um, Ellie Schmidt, who's quite so sort of vocal and says to him, 
you know, this is all your fault. Without your intransigence, we wouldn't have had this uprising. So, you know, you get this relatively early. Lotte Ulbricht, I think, is also an underestimated character in this um, Ulbricht's wife, um, who's herself quite a sort of, you know, vocal communist um, with, with her own ideas rather than just a passive um, sort of first lady or however you want to frame it. Um, so women do play a role in politics to some extent, but um, it's interesting that they never fully make it quite into the top ranks. And you write about Merkel, the person who becomes the most significant female politician in Europe, but her account of life in, in the GDR, I think you quote her as saying, it wasn't as bad as people think. There was always a, a place I could go to. You could always find your kind of freedom, but it was a private freedom. And you describe it going on these holidays and these trips. You know, the person who's going to become the public face of Germany says of East Germany, yeah, there were outlets for people like me, but they were entirely inward-driven, right? There was no public outlet for someone like her. Yes and no. I mean, she, she was also, uh, you know, a sort of leading figure within her local branch of the of the Free German Youth, and people forget that because she never talked about it. But the fact that she was a, a secretary for um, agitation and propaganda was the term, which effectively isn't quite as bad as it sounds in the sense that you organise events and concerts and things like that as basically part of this entire ideological package. But when she was a, a student and then a, a researcher, you know, that was kind of part of, of what she did as she worked within the the, the free German youth to, to put these events on and, and organize uh, holidays and trips. And some of these trips that she undertook, for instance, to Poland, um, where she then became really interested in Solidarność and, and looking at what was going on there intellectually, were actually organized through the free German youth. Later, she traveled independently, but there were even within the regime's own structures, there were these niches, and especially within the Free German Youth, they were often very vocal towards the regime and, and kind of told them what they thought of, of it. And that's, again, a chance I think that was missed to some extent was that the young people were there, they were saying what they wanted, and yet their voices just weren't heard or recognised. Yeah, I think for me, the also interesting aspect is the fact that the private becomes so political and that because in some way you have these societies where you can't have open dissent because there is a system of sanctions, people take their dissent into their private spaces, and so into their families, into their birthday parties, into the weddings, and depending on who they are, they develop a whole way of talking to each other. In the case of Albania, it was often coded language because it was much, I think, higher degree of repression. But it meant that still, to some extent now, for people who are growing up in that society and in those social norms, it was very normal to talk about very big political questions and about geopolitics. And something that I remember when I moved outside Albania and into the kind of West and, you know, in Britain, or, it seemed almost that it was not polite to talk about, to ask someone, who do you vote for and yeah, why do no you vote religion, for this? No politics. Why do you vote for this person and why do you believe in this system? And yeah, uh, Partly because and, people think the wedding will go badly if you start <laughs> off, and, and they're not wrong either. <laughs> so, so I always, I had this sort of difficulty of adapting because, you know, I had grown up in this society where even though it wasn't outside vocal in the newspapers, it was clear that everyone was breathing and thinking politics. And then you move on. And then finally, there's a freedom to talk and to have all these discussions. And then nobody actually wants to have the discussions. You quote some people, there are defenders of the GDR still, and they want to say something that sometimes people say now about China, which is, Yes, it's not democratic if by democratic you mean elections, but that's our sort of quaint Western <laughs> belief that it's all about elections. It's You describe this in some senses, this is a very democratic society because entry into positions of power 
is open much more widely than it is in more hierarchical, structured, family-based societies, which includes the West, right? You know, politicians are often the children of politicians and so on. And lots of people in East Germany found a way to a position of power that would have been much harder under previous kinds of social and regime arrangements. And yet, it has a real, or it did have a real problem with renewal. That's that's what it feels like. So there is, there is an openness that we miss. And people say this of China. They don't have elections, but there's a lot of ways in for people. If you're bright, if you're smart, if you're identified early, if you're loyal, you know, you can rise quite quickly. And that they're very keen on talent. In some ways, it's more meritocratic than the West. And yet what it couldn't do was renew itself. No, that's right. And if you also identify these people early, then you start, you know, this whole sort of cadre politics uh, that is also an obsession, I'd say, within the communist sort of ideology, that you identify people early and then sort of guide them through the process to leadership. You just make them into many clones of yourself eventually. I mean, you know, you eventually get sorted out of the system if you turn out to have an independent mind that doesn't quite fit in. Or, you know, in East Germany, it was enough to have relatives in the West because they just wouldn't trust you into higher positions because you could always, you know, be turned into a spy or you could actually leave eventually. And then that would be highly embarrassing for for the state of kind of one of its own left. So, you know, it was always dependent. Yes, there's an element of, of meritocracy there. And, and many people describe to me that they felt now that there was a sense of uh, frustration with the way that, you know, people say, oh, you only got into this position because you've got the right family background, when actually the academic standards, for example, were very high, especially in the sciences for, for you to sort of progress and and go, first of all, do sort of the equivalent to A-levels and then go to university. You had to be very, very good intellectually as well to to manage. But at the same time, if, you know, you didn't fit in or whatever, then that was also close to you. So it's, again, one of these paradoxes, I suppose, between you know, the opportunities that were open to some social classes and people from some social backgrounds, but not to others who may have had the same qualifications. Did Albania feel like that? I think it was a, a more rigid structure. And there was a sense that if you came from a bourgeois or property-owning family, there is something called a biography that was always going to follow you throughout your life. And so it was usually these university degrees, they were open or not open, depending not just how you performed in school, but also what kind of family background you had. And so you had to always write when you applied for universities, what was called a biography, where you said, my father did this, my grandfather did this, they fought in the war on which side, and if they didn't fight on the right side, they usually had to find something else to make up for that fact. But it was, I think, much more constrained and not as socially mobile as I read from uh, your book. And, uh, you know, my mom studied maths. She never could have studied something that was not a hard science because the idea was to study humanities. You had to be the daughter of a party official or in a family that could be reliable to teach people about Marxism. And you would never have a class enemy teach philosophy or, or you know, be a journalist. And so, in fact, usually what happened, all the scientists were, uh, if the people who managed to go to university were from backgrounds that were somewhat more dubious and then the politics or the humanities were more open to families of party officials or people who were had a, what was called a good biography. So, And I didn't get the impression that the biography... Biography was a really important element in Albania, and I didn't get the impression that that shaped as much the There is the same people. system, actually. So people did also have to write their little CVs and things and present their own biography to to the state or to, to an official. 
But the, I think there was more room because the regime was just a little bit more, I think, confident to allow some people who were not not obviously complete dissidents and people who were very vocal and against the state. But there were many people, especially artists, I found it's really interesting how they negotiated their own path between censorship and their creativity. You know, they're often now also dismissed. If you take somebody like Krista Wolf, who was, you know, often presented as a state artist uh, who worked with the state, but, you know, her work is also highly critical of the state at the same time in many ways and of the human tragedies that it caused. Um, and that applies to many films as well, which, you know, you take the, the most successful film in the GDR is The Legend of Paul and Paula, which highly risky at the time full of its sexual themes, but also its um, its political themes. And yet Eric Honecker himself went out of his way and rescued it from censorship and said, actually, this is going to be really popular. It will also be watched internationally. It may win prizes, you know, internationally. And they wanted that recognition for the GDR on the world stage. And they knew if they suppressed all talent that wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, I think the the negotiation between the political side and people's genuine talents and intelligence uh, was maybe a li- little bit more fluid in, in the GDR. So I want to finish with a what-if question, which is really two what-if questions. When I was a child, uh, it seemed like Germany was two countries. That's what I grew up believing from the West. Um, and it would always be like this. And it was weird. And I remember a lot of people have this memory from the outside, the shock of discovering that West Berlin was in East Germany. There's that moment of thinking, because I just assumed mm. as a child not having looked at the map, that the line went all the way down the middle. I think a lot of people thought mm, that yeah. and that Berlin was on the border. And then trying to work out, it, how does it work? Because how do people cross? And it just didn't make sense. But you thought, but it must work because this is the way the world mm. is. This is the way the world will always be. There's a wall that's not coming down. And then, of course, it comes down and astonishes everyone. But your book suggests these two kind of what-if questions and take either of them, one of which is maybe it could have lasted longer. Maybe if those opportunities to open up were taken a bit further, a move closer to something like a form of social democracy, were there actual missed opportunities? You use that phrase in the book, missed opportunities, which suggests that something could have been done differently with a potentially different outcome. And then the other thing that haunts it, not in the later stages, but the earlier stages, is German reunification at an earlier point. You know, the various conversations that were had, some secret, some open, but particularly in the earlier stages, and with the knowledge that Stalin and indeed some of his successors at various points were were nervous about this division. Do either of you think this story could have gone differently? Only in terms of timing for me, like either earlier or later is very possible, but I don't see how the GDR could have been a permanent thing just because you basically have a a very artificial division of a country, of a nation that only came about out of the very specific circumstances of the Second World War. And of course, you know, you take something like Korea as an example or Vietnam for a long time. There are other nations, um, countries that are split into and, and do this for much longer. Um, but you look at the type of regime you have in North Korea and, and you sort of see why that is. I don't think that would have worked in Germany, not least because of the access to one another's kind of experiences and cultures that was always there, whilst North Korea is, of course, very, just as a, as a counterexample, very isolationist and literally cuts its own people off completely. Whilst if you were in East Germany, you know, you had access, as I said, to Western news and media and everything. Your relatives would come over. Travelling the other way was getting easier. So lots of people, and again, this is often forgotten in the story of the wall, 
traveled over to West Germany for events, for cultural exchanges. There were lots of um, scientific, you know, exchanges between like universities. The churches were talking to each other. Um, people went over for birthdays, weddings, funerals and things. So I think, you know, there's, even at the time people were conscious of that. You had the sort of called magnet theory of the two German magnets being drawn towards each other. And the question was supposedly, you know, which has the big, biggest pulling power. But eventually they'd pull back together. And also the fact that you have the East German kind of socialists sitting down together with the Social Democratic Party in West Germany and coming up with this kind of paper in the 80s that exploded where they're both saying, well, there's system competition at the moment between social democracy and socialism on the other side. Let that play out. One of them will eventually prevail. But the, the idea is the same. They can peacefully coexist. But eventually one or the other will prove to be the better system and, and will bring Germany back together under one leadership. And they just had one other what if, I remember Gunter Grass, among other people, after the wall came down, putting his name to a little book that was called One Nation, Two States, wanting to say we need to preserve this other version of politics within this new Germany. You know, we want this plural system. We don't want everything to collapse into the West. It now seems like a very quaint idea. Any possibility of that? Well, I think, yeah, I think there is a way of looking at it, which is, you know, 1989, Stalin's dream finally becomes true. You have a unified German liberal democratic <laughs> republic. But what you also have is a form of colonialism. If you don't think of colonialism just as occupying territory and war and violence, but you think of the way in which an entire place becomes subjected to a system of laws that is different from what they had up to that point. What you have in the relationship between West Germany and East Germany is you get Western German law, the basic constitution, the main social positions are defined by the West German law, and the Eastern Germans are just the recipients of this system of rules. And I think it could have played out differently if there had been more flexibility in the way in which these two bodies of politics were put together and if people have been a bit more imaginative in Western Europe about not thinking of this just as a war that ends with the winners and the losers. And now the losers have to take the guilt, the blame, the shame that comes with the end of a war. And it was a Cold War, but the, the mentality that defined the end of the Cold War was that of a hot war, actually a real war. And I think that is not just the case in East Germany, but across the post-communist European world, the pattern was one where the West gave the laws literally, sometimes really literally in the case of the Albanian constitution. They were copy pasted by Western constitutions. And I think if that process had been a little bit more inclusive and with more reflection in terms of what can we learn from these experiences, what can, how can the West become better? How can the West take the best of the East as well as the East take the best of the West, I think we would have ended up with a very different Europe from the one we have now. Yeah, no, I agree. You, especially in within Germany, where you've got literally people from the same nation talking to each other, and initially, also the idea was not to have a split Germany, both of the West, the West German state and the East German state. Initially, in 1949, come up with a with a constitution each that is a literal mirror image of each other, and both kind of have a clause in there that says this is temporary and once Germany is reunified, we'll come up with a new constitution. There were actually law cases fought after the wall fell around this. You know, is it even legal to just absorb East Germany into West Germany or do they need to come up with a new constitution? And many people in the West, particularly the Social Democratic Party at the time, were actually pushing for that and saying, you know, there should be a new constitution and you could have created a a new Germany out of that. The problem was that it was all going very, very quickly. And and Kohl, uh, Helmut Kohl, the West German Chancellor, made 
that part of his own agenda, not least to save his own political career. He had a lot of uh, kind of scandals and problems around uh, himself and the party in, in West Germany and became the unification chancellor and thereby, you know, sort of saved his own career as well to some extent. Um, but the fact that it was pushed through so quickly and with so little debate and as, as Leo was just saying with this idea of one side's defeated the other, therefore the, the losers uh, devalidated in everything that they did culturally, economically and, and politically. Katjahoya's book is Beyond the Wall, East Germany, 1949 to 1990. It's available now. And Leiripi's Free is available in paperback. Both of them. Get them wherever you get good books. Please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. We will post links, we will post clips, we will post information about future episodes. Next week is the first in the new series of the History of Ideas, in which I'm going to be talking about the great political essays by the greatest essayists. And I'm starting with the person who is perhaps the greatest essayist of all, the man who invented the form, Montaigne. Please join us for that. We've been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.